Hello and welcome to Creative Lives, the Lecture in Progress podcast. Lecture in Progress is an online resource that inspires and informs the next generation of talent by providing practical advice and insight into the creative industry. This podcast series features a broad range of people talking about what they do and how they got to where they are. Our guest this week is magazine enthusiast and expert Jeremy Leslie, who runs editorial design resource MagCulture. My name's Jeremy Leslie and I run MagCulture. Set up as a blog nearly 13 years ago, Jeremy has since expanded MagCulture into an online journal, a physical shop located in central London, regular in-store events and ModMag, an annual conference hosted in both the US and the UK. On top of all this, it also operates as a design studio. He tells us more about this work and how it overlaps with the rest of MagCulture's output. So the MagCulture studio started in 2009 and we work across all sorts of aspects of editorial design from sort of hands-on design for for clients directly, for redesigning magazines, for identities, for logos, for, for both for print and digital. Some of the things that we've done that I would draw attention to is the identity for Eon online site, which has really good content. We did the identity and original website for that. And currently I'm working with Maison Moderne, which is a Luxembourg-based magazine publisher. So I'm their creative director, so I I look after their studio, mentor their staff, look over all the magazines, the key parts and redesigns and stuff, and uh, helping them develop beyond Luxembourg into other parts of Europe. So it's kind of like for very small projects, very big projects like that, and everything in between. It's quite a small, ongoing series of projects, but it fits in alongside all the other things that we do. And I think it's important for the other things that we do that I'm still working in a hands-on environment, actually doing design as well as talking it. Also the author of multiple books, Jeremy's varied role can range from writing and editing to creative direction and designing to event curation, speaking and hosting. Before going full-time with MagCulture, Jeremy started out as a designer and art director for companies including the now-defunct magazine Blitz, Time Out magazine, and content marketing agency John Brown Media. He tells us how it all began growing up in London. So I grew up in Fulham in West London, and my academic failures were matched by the enthusiasm and support I had from the art department at school. So a big thank you to Mr. Lobley, the head of art, who sort of took me and a few others in my year under our wing and we became the art crew and we did up to A-levels doing that. And then I was sort of always drawing letters. <laughs> but Mr. Lobley, he said, you've got to go to the London College of Printing or London College of Communication as is now. So I just thought, okay, fine, <laughs> I'll, I'll apply there. And I got onto foundation and it seemed that year, I mean, foundation is just the best of the year. I just never looked back from there, really. I had no idea I was going to go into magazines. And at that stage... I was engaging with magazines. I was still buying NME. City Limits was a fantastic listings magazine at the time. Then the face happened, and that was very important. Uh, But it took me a long time before I realised that actually what I was doing, what I was interested in in terms of magazines and the record sleeves of of the music I was listening to was done by a designer. And then I left uni, whatever, May, June, got my degree, and... um, a friend was working at City Limits magazine, which is something that I was buying. And I was lucky enough to get a couple to maybe three weeks work in the studio at City Limits, when it's still hand paced up and everything. And I just really loved it. I just, it was a real buzz. There was a real excitement on a weekly magazine. There was a really clear cycle. I think the magazine came out on a Tuesday morning. Friday and Monday were really, really busy. It printed overnight. Tuesday was a bit chilled. Then you start the next issue on the Wednesday. And I just really enjoyed that cycle. And even though my part in it was really, really tiny. I just loved the fact that I had laid out something and that it was in print and 
there was a mystique that was beginning to clear. I, I'm a great believer in fate and luck and sort of things happening because they're meant to happen, certainly. And I mean, I think you have to have a certain ability and, and raw talent to be able to achieve something, but uh, above and beyond that, so much of it is luck. And I think through that, I, I, I can't remember exactly how, but that November I joined a magazine called Blitz, which was a kind of competitor for the face or that similar kind of style magazine market. And um, they were looking for an art director. I mean, I'd, I'd done like three weeks as a studio intern. I mean, but anyway, so suddenly I was, I, w- I was a designer, but I was the only trained designer on that magazine. There was maybe about eight people working on it, and I was the only person that had any graphic skills whatsoever. So I just spent three years there mucking around and trying things out, and that sort of got me into it. So there were three magazines. There was ID the face and blitz and and they all had different things going for them and just slightly different directions and they were all quite competitive but they all kind of set the tone for the next 20 years of publishing really between them but I, I mean I do look back I'm very clear I mean I was enormously fortuitous to be in a situation where once I'd sort of proved my ability to get stuff straight on the page which was kind of a very low bar but that was the kind of bar I was given pretty much a free rain to play around and sort of learn myself about what worked and what didn't work. And I also met some very good people, writers and other designers, uh, the woman that was to be my wife. I mean, all, all sorts of things happened in, in that stage. So a bit later on, when I was working at Time Out magazine, I was art director there for three or four years. They reviewed a lot of books and every now and again, the picture book would come in or a book about a designer and they said, oh, well, maybe Jeremy could write something. And so I began to write little book reviews about things like, I don't know, um, the illustration work of Javier Mariscal. And I was lucky, again, to work with some very good sub-editors and people there who made changes to my text and talked me through why they changed it. So, you know, I would preface a, a, a review of a, of a Mariscal book with sort of, last summer I went to Barcelona, it was really interesting. Blah, 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 blah. So, you know, they strike out the first three paragraphs and say, this is the bit the reader wants. So, yeah, I mean, that, all through that, I began to sort of get that. Once you realise that there's something you feel passionate about and that you're interested in, as long as you've got the kind of basic wherewithal, it isn't that difficult to start writing about it. Most of my career, I've been an editorial designer. I've been designing magazines, started off designing magazines and then moved into creative direction, overseeing other designers at a big London publisher. And while I was there, I got very interested in uh, recording. I was collecting a lot of magazines. I was interested in their role as sort of mirrors of the society and the times that they were published into, both in obvious senses in terms of the content, the written and f- image content. And I began to, to develop a role commentating on, on magazines as well as actually actively making them. And that second book was called Mad Culture. And that's where the name came from. Off the back of that, started to blog about magazines and it was very much a blog it's very personal it was very small scale but it very quickly built an audience it kind of happened at the time that all the big publishers here and in other countries particularly new york were investing in the computer and broadband access to the internet for their staff it was obviously a thing so there was an audience looking around for stuff to do with magazines and myculture.com sort of landed in their lap i think And I found myself, because I was established myself as a sort of keen observer of what was going on, I would get invited to speak at various conferences. Having started Mag Culture while still working at John Brown Media, Jeremy recalls the sequence of events that led to finally going it alone and taking his side project full-time. There was one key event. There was a conference took place in Luxembourg called Colophon. 
which was about independent magazine publishing. And the guy who set it up is a publisher in that city country called Mike Kodinger, who is now both a friend and a client. He, he, he set up this conference called Colophon, which took place in 2007, 2009. And it was a three-day conference in Luxembourg, of all places. But Luxembourg is actually right in the center of Europe. So we had a huge number. We had 2,000 people come. And it was a great event. We, we, we had um, a whole load of speakers. I spoke, we had panel discussions, how to do magazines, portfolio reviews, and illustration projects, and all sorts of stuff. We made a magazine over the weekend. It was a huge event. And it introduced me the thought that I could maybe slow down on my day job and concentrate on doing this other sort of the passion job and then we did it again two years later the things we did so we invite each time we invited 10 magazines to we gave them a space in a gallery and said you know here's your room recreate your magazine as an environment and things like that it was just i loved it it's fantastic you know some people rose to it better than others and the reason i got invited to be a co-creator to that was because the mag culture website or i could use mag culture took the plunge called it mag culture had the website and the studio and just had them for a little bit uh, we did the, the Mod Magazine book, uh, and off the back of that, we launched the Mod Magazine event, and we were doing more stuff like that. And then I realised that there, you know, this this someone is going to open a magazine shop in London. You know, if I if I go to Berlin and be wowed by the shops there, I'd go to um, Barcelona, wherever. There'd always be. So really good print shops, Germany, everywhere you go. And I thought, well, someone's going to do it in London. That would be good. And I thought, oh, no, but someone's going to do it in London. It won't be as good as something that I want it to be. And so I just thought, okay, we're going to do it. At that point, it was serious. Having dedicated so much time to collecting, reviewing and musing over magazines, we asked Jeremy what he feels makes for exemplary editorial design. What I love about editorial design is the way you're involved with taking words and images and bringing them together and sort of creating a a third thing out of those. You're synthesizing something else out of those elements that other people have made. So a writer's invested time and effort into some great text. Photographer or illustrators work really hard on creating a a relevant uh, image or images. And then it's up to you to express and make those into something on the page. And I love the fact that what two magazines can attack the same story and have a completely different end result. To take what I hope is an obvious example, something like The New Yorker, which is very classic and very staid and very reductive and simple in appearance. But as over the hundred or so years it's existed, it has gone through various changes and is absolutely right for what it's doing it's it's a serious well put together it's about the quality of all the content and the design takes a very much a back seat it's designed to the absolute last degree but it's all about parameters rather than being flamboyant and and, and showing off your typographic skills um, it's a different type of typographic skill and restraint i love that i think that's fantastic and that you just have to compare other magazines that seek to achieve the same kind of design and how they're not as good. But actually, it's very difficult to get that sort of identity within that kind of design where I do believe, you know, you tear out a page, put it on a table. If anyone's ever seen The New Yorker before, they will recognise it immediately. So that's at one end. Then the other end, you get really, really expressive editorial design, which can be just as wonderful and, and, and perhaps more easier to appreciate perhaps more subjective in terms of what you would pick out as a great example. Something like Oh So, which is a new magazine for women skateboarders and about women skateboarders. It has a great origin story about why it came about. It was made by the father of a seven-year-old girl who was 
disappointed when she went to the skateboard shop to find that it was all male and very masculine and very much kind of didn't seem to be a place for women, let alone a, a young girl. Together, they've discovered that there is a world of, of women skateboarding. They've made a magazine about it and it's completely over the top visually. It's, the origin story is great. The stories they found out within it, including things about the, the movie Skate Kitchen and a number of the kind of leading pro women skateboarders is fantastic. But in the end, for the dad, it's just been a you know almost that kind of project of parameter-free design where he's set his own parameters but it's just a fantastic flamboyant expressive piece of editorial design which would be completely wrong for the new yorker just as the new Yorker design would be completely wrong for that good editorial design takes its content and transforms that content into something that the reader you're aiming at wants to engage with the magazine industry has experienced a number of major shifts since jeremy got his first gig in editorial design We asked him what role he feels the printed page can play in an increasingly digital age, where he sees the industry currently, and his thoughts on its future. I think it's a really special time for magazines at the moment, and it has been for about the last 20 years. And there's an irony to that, and if if not a paradox, in the sense that just at the point at which everybody began to talk about how the business model of printed magazines was beginning to fail and how questioning whether print had a future, almost at that same moment... Uh, the technology made it much easier for people to set up on their own and set up their own magazine. You have a, a laptop and you have a copy of Creative Cloud, whether it's legitimate or not. You've got your gear, you've got the same equipment that whichever magazine you want to name, whether it's I don't know, Vogue or you've got the same gear that as, as they have. So, you know, all you need is the idea and the now to figure out what you're going to do. So it's, it's cheaper than ever for, for an outsider to come in and start playing with it. And I think alongside that, there's, uh, it's important to acknowledge that that same computer is also allowing them to create Tumblr blogs and whatever other digital form they want. So they, they're absolutely, you know, it just becomes, suddenly print is just an extension of all of that. It's just doing stuff from your same machine with the same fonts and the same equipment and the same text. But also I think because, you know, in, in my lifetime, I've seen a, a, what was a huge boom in magazines, which has been subsequently, from a business point of view, subsequently followed by the bust. And just as in whatever, in, in banking and housing and, and various things, there's booms and busts. There was a stage when this business was so successful that it, people were scared to do anything dangerous. They were There was so much money at risk that it wasn't worth the risk. And now... There's no longer that kind of level of, of, of um, income guaranteed. So people are braver. People are trying things. People are more, more, more able and have more better access to the gear to do it. And then they're also much less, you know, they go into it with their eyes open. They're not going to earn a quick buck and retire on it, they're, but they're going to have a great fun experimenting and having a go at it. So I think it is a really exciting time. Um, for magazines. Um, I think there's more and more magazines being made. They're not automatically good. You know, there's some real rubbish being made that's got to be remembered. But there's some really, really fantastic magazines. Who knows what's you know the long-term game is. But, you know, we, whatever happens between now and 20 years' time, say, we'll look back on this era as it, it will be regarded as a great time for print, despite the business model struggles that we have. Something that I think is terribly, terribly important and reflects on all content, whether it's online or in print, is that... We need to get back into the habit of paying for it. If it's going to be worth having, you have to pay for it. We, we're already beginning to see more and more paywalls being brought in. And Condé Nast have just announced that the, the free model is failing, you know, all, all your buzz feeds. 
and Huffington Post have just been, you know, recently made some quite big redundancies because they can't afford to keep it on, and that's because they're not, you know, it's, they're putting so much content out that's free. And in the end, you know, they've they've been their investors have treated them like kind of tech companies where you just pour lots of money in and it's going to, all the revenue is going to pour back out. But it's not like that with content. There is a value system that I think still means that especially now with with all the kind of problems of fake news if people need to under, people want good content and they're willing to pay for it and i think you look at the success of the new yorker or the new york times and i also think you look at something the success of something like the guardian which doesn't have a paywall but ask friends and subscribers and members to pay a subscription in order to maintain the free access to the quality of what they're doing and the problem we're going to find online is that as all the paywalls go up, is that it's going to cut out people from having access to stuff. And that's where print has an advantage because I buy a copy of printed pages and I've, I've put some money into the system for printed pages, but I can then show it to as many people I want. I think it's really hard to imagine what it's going to look like. What, what I am confident about is that there's, despite all the odds, there's a whole generation of people that are very, very skilled and visually talented and verbally textually talented who want to communicate and be journalists and make stuff that they care about and that they feel passionate about there's no you know it is a great time for publishing in the sense of of the creative end of the industry because of the failure business wise business has to catch up and figure out how we maintain the ability to to take advantage of all these skilled people And lastly, Jeremy shares his thoughts on getting into the publishing industry, especially when reaching out and emailing new contacts. You have to sometimes go for the fun as much as for the money if you're going to get something out of having a creative career. If you try and just make money out of being creative, I just think you're going to just have a very horrible and dry life. I know that right now it's harder than ever to get into a paid position in publishing. That said, they, they do exist. And the, re, the way you get there is by having your own standards and beliefs and living to them. Don't bend over to take the first thing that comes. Be clear on what your objectives are and what you hope to achieve. The, the, the editorial world largely is a very friendly and open world and, and people are open to requests and, and stuff as long as they're convincing and genuine, you know. It's still, you know, surprised me how, how undirected and unfocused some people will be. This happens too much and that is that someone's clearly copy and pasted an email and they've left someone's name at the top or left the reference to the company name from another business. I've done it when I've been writing to a client. It's very easy to do, but it's lazy and it's unprofessional. If you're going to be involved in editorial, that's the kind of mistake you can't make. You have to personalise it. So, I, you know, I want to hear from people that sort of picked up something from somewhere, whether it's this podcast or the past or something about me that they think that's why I want to work with that guy. I accept it could be bullshit, but nonetheless, I want to see that somebody's made the effort to find out about Jeremy Leslie and Mag Culture and have a reason related to something they know about it that's why they want to come and work. I want that personal connection that convinces me that when, when I meet that person, they've got something to tell me that we can talk about. This episode of Creative Lives was brought to you by Lecture in Progress. It was presented by me, Indy Davis, and the guest was Jeremy Leslie. The editor was Ivor Manley. Lecture in Progress is made possible with the support of a number of brand partners. They include GF Smith, Google, Sky Creative Agency, Colophon Foundry, and the Paul Smith Foundation. 
For more information, check out lectureinprogress.com and you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter.